You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning, you guys. My name is, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle. Uh, I'm one of the members here of New City, and it is uh, my privilege to get to preach this morning. Um, I'm going to be preaching through Jonah 2. Uh, this is the second week in a four-part series that uh, primarily uh, Nick is going to be preaching through, but we're going to be doing uh, each of the chapters of Jonah. I'll be looking at chapter 2 today. So if you would, um, get ready for the sermon by opening up your Bibles to Jonah 2. We're actually going to start... Um, in chapter 1, verse 17, just the very last verse, but uh, then we'll go through chapter 2 to verse 10. If you are using one of the Bibles, the black Bibles in the chairs, that it's on page 774. Give you some quick access. And then once you're there, would you mind standing? I'm going to read it, and out of reverence for God's word, um, I'd like for us all to be standing for that. All right, Jonah 1, 17 through 2, 10. God tells us this. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet... You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You may be seated. Not often that you hear the word vomited in scripture. Um, (laughs) uh, All right, so that's God's word. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for every word that is in your Bible. It's truth, it's guidance, it's value to our souls. God, I pray this morning as we look at Jonah 2 that you would open our hearts and minds to understand it, that you would give us motivation and conviction to live out what we learn, and perhaps most importantly, send your spirit to give us hearts of worship to Christ this morning. May all of this be done in exaltation of his name. 
I pray this in his name. Amen. All right. So Nick did um, an excellent job, as always, on uh, preaching through chapter one last week. He set a really good foundation for us uh, in understanding the book of Jonah. There are a couple things that I want to remind you, though, about this book. Some things that he mentioned, some things that might be kind of new that I wanted to bring up. Uh, So there's three things I want to point out before we really get into it. First is that Jonah is a very unique prophet. Think about the prophets of the Old Testament um, and even some of the ones in the New Testament. When we think of prophets, we think of very upstanding people, people of courage, people of godliness, people of truth. Jonah is not one of those people. Jonah is a very flawed character. Um, As you'll see as we make our way throughout this book and hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll see that in a lot of ways, he's the worst person in this story. Um, So Jonah is a very unique prophet. He's rebellious, he's passive, he's selfish, he's arrogant, he's incredibly hateful um, and superior towards other people. He is a unique prophet. So that's one thing to remember. Second is that this is a very unique book of prophecy. Um, Just take a glance, if you have your Bibles open still, just look at some of the other um, books of prophecy, Um, some of like the minor prophets. Just look at the very first verse of a lot of these books. If you flip back to Obadiah, it starts, the very first verse, the vision of Obadiah. Um, If you look after Jonah, Micah says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. Um, After that, Nahum, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Habakkuk, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Do you see a theme? Do you see a trend here? The books of prophecy are primarily books of words that were spoken. There are visions or prophecies that the prophets received from God, and then they spoke them to a people group or a nation or lots of different people groups and nations, whatever the case may be. But the point is that most prophetic books, if not all others, are chock full of prophecy and very little story. This is the complete opposite of that. The book of Jonah is very unique as a prophecy because it is primarily a narrative story, if you think about it. We haven't even gotten to any prophecy yet. Um, Chapter two is a prayer, but it's not a prophecy. The only prophecy that is spoken in this entire book occurs in chapter three, and in our English translations, it's only eight words. In the original Hebrew, it's five. So in this entire book of prophecy, there are only five words of actual prophecy that exist here. So again, we have a unique prophet and we have a very unique book of prophecy. And I point that out because this book, in a lot of ways, we should understand it as a satire. This is meant to be a story. And this is my third point, that Jonah, this book, and even the character, I would say, is ultimately meant to point us to God and us. It's not as so much a prophecy given to a specific people 
as much as it is a story given for us to reflect upon and to learn from ourselves. Like all satire, this is a story meant to cause us to, to, to reflect. And at the same time as it causes us to reflect, you'll see this causes us to look at God's mercy in a new light, hopefully. Hopefully it will expand our view of it. This is a story of how God extends mercy to us, um, his flawed, frequently wayward people. Um, So this morning, let's approach the text with that in mind. This isn't just a fun kid's story. Um, So many books are about Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the fish. This isn't that. This is scripture meant to challenge our preconceptions and teach us something about ourselves and God. So let's humble ourselves before that this morning. With that said, let's also then establish the narrative. Like I said, this isn't so much about prophecy as it is a story. So what is the story? What has happened already? We know a couple of things. We looked at it last week. First, Jonah was told to go to the Ninevites, enemies of the Jews. Um, God tells him to call them to repentance. What does he do? Instead of going east, which is the direction to Nineveh, so imagine the Middle East. Israel is on the eastern coast of uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Nineveh is basically directly east of there from your point of view. Jonah, what does he do? He gets on a boat, and his goal is to go in the exact opposite direction. Tarshish is... If you can imagine a map, if you know where the Strait of Gibraltar is, where the Mediterranean Sea opens up to the Atlantic Ocean, Tarshish is just inside the Strait of Gibraltar. It is the very western edge of the Mediterranean Sea on the Spanish coast. So at that point in time, the Mediterranean was, or the Atlantic Ocean was the end of the world. So imagine Jonah is told to go east, so he literally runs to the opposite end of the world as far as you possibly can, or at least that was his goal. But what happens is we know God doesn't like that. God stops him by sending a storm that basically swamps the ship that he's on. The pagan sailors are crying out to whatever God that they can to try to get um, the, cal- the storm to be calmed. They even cry out to God once Jonah talks to them. But what is his reaction? His reaction is to hide. He's hiding in the bowels of the ship, just trying to avoid God at all costs. Um, that doesn't work, though. God doesn't let him. And ultimately, <laughs> instead of being humbled to that reality, like I said, Jonah is a very flawed character. Instead of wising up, to say like, okay, I can't escape God, he decides, you know what? The way I'm gonna escape is I wanna die. So he tells the sailors, throw me overboard. He's not even willing to jump himself. He's forcing them to kill him. Again, flawed character. He's trying to make them complicit in his own sin. So here we are, Jonah has just been thrown overboard off of the ship into the storm. And that's where we find ourselves. And what we find out here in chapter two is that Jonah nearly drowns after being thrown into the sea. He's sinking into the deep and was about to die when God sends a large fish. Again, we don't know 
fish or whale, we're not sure the word that is used here in the Hebrew is just meant to describe a large aquatic creature. So it could be a whale, but it might not be. We don't know. I'm going to call it a fish because that's what the text says. God sends a large fish to swallow him just before he drowns in the ocean. And once he's swallowed, Jonah spends three days and nights inside of this fish. And given that we, he knows how much time has passed, and given that we have this text is a prayer that he prays from inside of the fish on that third day, he must be at least awake and alert during all of this ordeal, which is kind of terrifying to imagine. Um, but Jonah has spent three days in this fish when he finally comes to a place where he's willing to engage with God. Finally, he's engaging with God. And he does so by thanking him for saving him. So where before he was trying to run from God and ignore him, he is finally willing to face God and actually commune with him. Now friends, Jonah's prayer here is not a good example of repentance. We'll talk more about this later. This is not good repentance. But it's still a remarkably beautiful prayer. It gives us a glimpse into God's mercy, a mercy that Jonah knew about but didn't really know until maybe this very moment. So that's what we're gonna be focusing on today. And in particular, I want us to see three things from this passage. We're gonna be asking some questions about mercy. First is who is God's mercy for? Second, what is God's mercy like? And third, how are we assured of God's mercy? Those are gonna be my three points for this sermon. And we're gonna learn about each of them from Jonah's prayer and experience here. It's my hope that in answering those three questions, you will look at yourself in the mirror, see all of your flaws and failures as they really are, and yet you will see that God's mercy still goes deeper and further in. Just as we sang a little while ago, God's mercy is more than our sins. A person like you with all of your weaknesses and sins is exactly the type of person who God most extravagantly wants to shower his mercy upon. And he wants you to find confidence and joy in that. That is the point of this book, and that is the point and my hope for this sermon. So first, who is God's mercy for? In short, it is for anyone who needs it and asks for it. It's that simple. Look with me again at verses one through seven. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. He's equating the ocean and him sinking into it with Sheol, with death, with the grave. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head as the, at the roots of the mountains. He's so deep that the seaweed is wrapping around him. Um, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He thought he was dying. 
Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Up to this point, Jonah has been ignoring God, but all that changed when he almost died. Near-death experiences tend to have that effect on people. This passage actually makes me think about a a video that I watched um, a while back. It was a video about suicide prevention. I actually had to watch it for my job. Um, And in this video, fascinating video, very compelling. If you just search Golden Gate Bridge, well, I don't know exactly what you would want to search, but you can find it on YouTube. Um, But basically, a man is being interviewed. He attempted suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And if you don't know, the Golden Gate Bridge is very, very high, over 200 feet above the water, 250 feet roughly. And so people who typically attempt suicide by doing that the vast majority succeed, unfortunately. This man did not. He jumped and he survived the fall into the water and he was saved. And so they're interviewing this man after this event has happened. And they start the video with him saying, the moment my hands left the railing and my feet went over the edge, I regretted my decision immediately. He said, as I was falling, I realized, what did I just do? I don't want to die. There have been 29 people who have survived like him. And every single one of them has said the exact same thing. All of them, once they're falling, they realize I have made a terrible decision. All of them. The moment they were faced with the reality of their impending death, all of them regretted that decision. They found clarity in the end. Jonah is just like that. That's exactly what we see taking place here in this story. And his stubbornness is, is on full display. As a prophet of God, he knew God. He knew his character and disposition. Look at Jonah 4.2. Nick actually brought this up um, last week. But he says, so what we'll come to see next week is Jonah uh, calls the Ninevites to repentance. They repent in sackcloth and ashes. Even the cows <laughs> are <laughs> wear sackcloth and ashes. Um, there's this tremendous display of repentance that happens. And what is Jonah's response? He is furious about it. And he explains why in chapter four, verse two. He says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knows this. He doesn't want God to be merciful and gracious towards them, and he knows that he will, which is why he was fleeing in the opposite direction in the first place. Jonah knows who God is. This is someone who knew all of the right things, yet his heart was still far from God. 
He wanted his sin more than he wanted God, even knowing who God was. It took being at death's door to wake Jonah up to his foolishness. And sadly, that is the case for many, many of us as well. I see that a lot in my job. Uh, I work in the ICU at Carl, and so I see a lot of people who are very close to death, if not actively dying. And the way that that brings clarity to people in the end is, it's pretty humbling to behold. And that's true, for, that's true for all of us. So often we need these remarkable wake-up calls. New City, I wanna ask, how are we much better than Jonah in this situation? I ask that seriously. Really stop and consider for yourself. I know I'm not better. Every day I choose sin even though I know I shouldn't. I haven't had any near-death experiences like Jonah but it definitely takes huge wake-up calls a lot of the time for me to turn away from my sin. And even when I do have those huge wake-up calls, eventually, I'm still tempted to go back to it a lot of the time. And when I do commit sins, do I humbly go to God in repentance? Sometimes, yes, usually no. More often than not, I think, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that, and then I just carry on with my day. I just ignore it, I forget about it. I become indifferent to my sin. I shrug it off and just go about my business. Is that not what we all do each and every day, multiple times a day? Each day I say, think, look at, and do things that I know are wrong. And for many other, and for many other things, I don't even stop and consider if they're wrong or not. I just do them and assume I'm justified in doing them. In those moments, I don't even care if I'm obeying God or not. Even on the occasions when I am actively choosing to flee temptation, I still want to do it a lot of the time. My heart longs for the sin even if I'm choosing to fight it. I am just like Jonah, and I know I'm not alone in that. It is something we don't, we have to own up to as we face this story head on, even if we don't want to. And notice, I mentioned earlier, this is not a good example of repentance. Notice that Jonah never actually apologizes in this prayer. He never says he's sorry. He never acknowledges that he's done anything wrong. In fact, he actually doubles down on his sin at one point. Look at verses eight and nine in chapter two. Jonah says this, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, superior I, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You guys, those people who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking probably about those pagan sailors who were actually the ones doing the right thing in the story. He's probably thinking about the Ninevites that God was telling him to go and repent to. He's thinking about everyone else but himself. He's doubling down on his sin. This is not good repentance. This prayer is a pretty terrible example of repentance. Even after his wake-up call, Jonah still doesn't get it. 
Jonah still does not see how foolish or sinful he has been lately. But you guys, God still delivers him. God still shows him mercy in the midst of his very flawed and weak act of, act of repentance. Because in the end, Jonah still turned to him. That's all God asks for. Friends, that, that, what I just said, is perhaps the most remarkable thing that happens in this entire story, in all these four chapters. This act of mercy is better than all of the rest. It isn't that God showed mercy to the pagan sailors. They were earnest to obey God once they learned about him. It isn't that he will show mercy to the evil Ninevites in chapter three. Um, it's hard to repent better than the Ninevites do, as, as we'll see next week. What is truly shocking is that even Jonah gets shown mercy. Despite being a prophet, Jonah is the worst, most despicable person in this story. If you really think about it, he's the antagonist of this book. Jonah is, our prophet, the guy we're following, the man of God. He is the antagonist in this story. And in that, we are just like him. We are the antagonists in our story. We have turned our backs on God. I hate saying it, but New City, we are much more like Jonah than we are Paul in the later books of the Bible at least as, as they are both portrayed in scripture. When rebuked and disciplined, we tend to be slow to change. Like Jonah, our feelings don't change simply because we know that they're wrong. Our sinful desires linger and we don't fight them nearly as hard as we could. He is like us, a man who backslides and whose growth is inconsistent at best. But, I don't say that to discourage you. It might sound like I am. I'm just berating us on how terrible we are. But I'm not sharing this to discourage us. I'm actually saying this because it gives us great hope because it is exactly people like Jonah, people like us, who God shows the greatest mercy to. I don't know what shame or sin you come here with this morning. What I do know though, is that you are tempted to minimize it. All of us are, attempted, are tempted to do that. We want mercy, but we think that we have to be at least some level of good to earn it. We've gotta at least be, like we need some mercy, but if we need all the mercy, then God's gonna say no, something like that. We have a small view of mercy, so we shrink our view of our own sin to fit inside of that. Because as long as, our mercy is, as long as our sin is small enough, God's mercy is vast enough to offer it to us. Then we can be hopeful that we can have it. But you guys, the answer is not to shrink down our picture of sin. It is widening our view of God's mercy. Expanding how great and vast it is. Let's keep a large view of our sin. Let's treat it with the seriousness it deserves. But let's also at the same time say, Still, God's mercy is greater. It is wider and vaster. Hear me, regardless of what baggage you come with this morning, there is mercy for you in God. All he expects is for you to bring it to him. Don't wait until you have fixed it to go to him, or you're never going to. Acknowledge your sin before him and find mercy and healing in his arms. 
Like Jonah in his distress, cry out to God and he will answer. Verse seven says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. And you know what, you guys? God is probably thinking at this moment, Jonah, you could have come to me so much sooner. Let that be true for us. Don't wait until your dying day. You might not feel clean enough to approach God, but he still begs you to come. Look with me. You can turn there in your Bibles, or you don't have to. You can just listen. I want to read Psalm 103, verses 6 through 14 to you. This is what God's mercy looks like, you guys. Psalm 103, verses 6 through 14. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Sound familiar? He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, as far as Nineveh is from Tarshish, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. You guys, I don't know how to put it any better than that. That is our God news city. His disposition and character is such that he longs to pardon our sins and show us mercy. And his expectation is not that you stop needing him. He isn't a God that's like, here, I've shown you mercy this time, now the rest is on your own. He isn't a God who stops wanting you to need him. He's not stingy with his mercy. His expectation is that you keep going to him. He offers it abundantly. If you are thirsty, his fountain will never run dry. The more sin you bring to him, the more mercy he will offer you. Let's take God at his word. Let's go to him for mercy. It is for all who ask him for it. But that brings us to my next question and point. What does that mercy actually look like? So second, what does God's mercy look like? I'll be upfront with you. My main goal with this question is to point out one particular thing, and that is this, that God's mercy is not always comfortable. Look with me, getting back to uh, Jonah 2, look with me at, well, actually, chapter 1, verse 17, the very start of our passage and the very end of it. So we'll look at verse 117 and 210. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prays, Verse 2.10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I point this out because I want us to not lose the forest for the trees. Don't lose sight of the context of this passage. Jonah is praying to God in thanksgiving. But what is he thankful for? He's thankful that he just spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. 
Now, we don't know what the experience was like for him, but I can assure you it must not have been very pleasant. I don't think any of us could say that we would want to share in this experience. It was probably downright miserable for Jonah, but he's still thankful, and I think genuinely so. He might not be repenting well, but we do see Jonah being genuinely thankful here in this prayer. And he shows that thankfulness by still going to Nineveh and doing what God asked him, albeit begrudgingly, but he does ultimately do what God wants him to do. And he does that out of thanksgiving. He appreciates this experience. But again, my point is this, this miserable experience is God's mercy. The fish was his deliverance from death. Jonah recognizes that. That is the whole point of his prayer. But again, this deliverance is not comfortable. In fact, it's probably the worst three days of Jonah's life. Considering Jonah, like I said at the beginning, he knew it's three days, he's praying from inside the fish. He's probably aware of everything that's going on. New City, God's mercy can be comfortable and easy at times. God does that. He gives us Great joy, great ease, great comfort at times. But oftentimes it isn't too. His mercy can feel quite severe, actually. But that doesn't mean it isn't good. And it doesn't mean that he's abandoned us. Jonah sees that and knows that, and I want us to grasp that as well. Listen to a couple um, other verses from Scripture. One, Psalm 84, verse 11 says this, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from us. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the Lord doesn't withhold any good from his people, and he works all things out that they experience for their good. And then Psalm eleven five, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So thinking about all three of those verses together, What I understand, and I think this is so key for us to get when we look at the whole of Scripture, and I think Jonah gets this, but this is something that we can easily lose sight of, is that too much suffering can be a bad thing for us. It's bad for our souls. But too little suffering can also be a very bad thing for our souls. And God in his infinite wisdom and infinite love, knows exactly how much of it we each need. It's gonna be different for everyone, but he, in his infinite love and wisdom, knows exactly how much we need for our greatest well-being. And that's what he gives us in this life. 
sometimes it's terrible. Sometimes it's severe. Sometimes it's so painful and hurts. I have experienced that. If you haven't experienced that yet, you will most likely one day. God not only just allows suffering, but he appoints the suffering in our life. Notice that Jonah points that out. He says, he recognizes the Lord appointed the fish to swallow him up. He also appointed the whale to vomit him up, or the fish. Um, He also acknowledges, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. He's recognizing this was all done by God. He's not ignoring that fact. But he's being able to, he's willing to see, even though this hurts, I trust that it is good for me. And that's what I want us to be able to take away from this. Comfort and well-being are not synonymous. And at times, God will forsake our comfort to prioritize our overall well-being. We have to embrace that, or else we'll actually sometimes despise God for the very mercies that he's showing us. Or we'll assume he's abandoning us when it's actually the exact opposite of what he's doing. Despite what pop culture teaches us these days, we don't actually usually know what's best for us. We know what will make us happy a lot of the time or what's most comfortable, but that is not the same thing as what's best for us. Again, sometimes it is. A lot of the time it's not. Jonah is a good example of this. He wanted to die at the end of chapter one. Remember that, dying in the sea would have been easier for his for him. His suffering would have been shorter and he would have been able to get out of doing the thing that he least wanted to do. He saw death as an out. He saw that. He thought that was the best thing for him. God had other plans though. And even though saving him meant he spent three days in the belly of a fish, probably in some degree of torment and misery, It was good for him, it was better for him. In his case, mercy was scary and very painful. And it is sometimes for us too. Sometimes mercy means facing the consequences of our sin so that we can kill them more effectively in the future. Sometimes mercy means stripping us of every earthly comfort so that we have nothing and no one to rely on but God. Sometimes mercy looks like hitting absolute rock bottom so we have nowhere to look but up to him. That is the case sometimes. So in that suffering, friends, have hope. Let's make our definition of mercy more robust than the definition of mercy that the world has. Some of you may be experiencing a severe mercy from God right now. And if that isn't you, like I said, that will likely be you at some point. Know this, that his compassion compassion may feel neither comfortable nor easy. And you will be tempted to think that he has forsaken you. But it's the exact opposite that is true. 2 Corinthians 3.18 promises us that through our struggles, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. 
And I love the very end of Jude, Jude 24. It's talking about trusting God because of the goal that he has for our lives. What is that goal? His goal is to present you through the severe mercies and the good, the, the pleasant mercies that he offers. It's to present you blameless before his own presence and glory with great joy. The journey that you're on, that he's leading you on, is bringing you to that point. So have hope in that. Hang in there. He is working at an eternal salvation and joy for you that will overshadow your present suffering just like the sun overshadows all the other stars in the sky. Can you see them during the day? No, because the sun is so bright, they're completely gone. That is what it'll be like to experience joy in God's presence in the eternity to come. All of our present struggles will disappear in light of that. So let's, let's hope in that. But that leads me to my third point, is how can we say that? How can we actually know that is true? Third, how can we be assured of God's mercy towards us? In Jonah 2.9, Jonah states that salvation belongs to the Lord. How do we know that that salvation can actually be ours? Well, hundreds of years after the events of Jonah, the Jews actually approached Jesus with a very similar kind of question in mind. They asked him for a sign of everything that he was promising would come true. They wanted to know, what he, was he really the Messiah who was about to bring the salvation for the Jews that he was claiming was true? And Jesus answered him. And he actually references Jonah. So we're going to look at that. Matthew 12 is where Jesus responds. Let me read for you Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41. It says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You guys, that is why we can be assured of God's mercy. Because just as Jonah brought a message of salvation to the Ninevites after escaping death, Jesus achieved something far greater than what Jonah did. Jonah only appeared to have died while he was in the fish. And he was a very flawed sinner, as we've already seen, who only carried a message of salvation. He didn't actually save the Ninevites themselves. He just brought them a message of salvation. He couldn't save them himself, nor would he have even, like, he didn't want to. So even if he wanted to, he wouldn't have been able to. But you guys, Scripture does this a lot. Scripture will set up something called a type. 
It's using typology, where there's an example in the Old Testament that's meant to foreshadow and point to the greater fulfillment that is accomplished in Jesus in the New Testament. Jonah is a perfect example of this. Jonah is a type that is meant to point us forward to Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 12. Jesus' story is similar, but it is on an entirely greater level than Jonah is. In every way that Jonah fell short, Jesus succeeded. You guys, where Jonah was a sinner, Jesus was sinless. Where Jonah was merely a man, Jesus is, was and is, both God and man. Where Jonah despised the Ninevites, Jesus loves us with an unending and relentless love. Where Jonah only brought a message of salvation, and I think this is the, the, the coolest thing to reflect on in this passage, Jonah brought a message of salvation. He didn't accomplish it at all. Where he brought that message, Jesus actually fulfills that salvation for us. He died for the sins of mankind and was resurrected to show his victory over sin and death really was complete for us. The penalty for our sins is death, but Jesus endured that penalty on the cross, you guys. Only he, being both man and God, could face the full force of that penalty and endure. Only he could do that. No human being could face that wrath of God and persist. But Jesus could and did. Because of him, salvation can exist. We know that because he was raised from the dead three days later. If he hadn't been, we would have no confidence that any of this is true. But he did. We know that. It is a historical fact. Jesus rose from the dead to prove this is all true. He redeemed us from our sins, clothed us in his righteousness, and gave us the promise of new life, something that only could go to someone without sin, who we weren't but now are because he paid the penalty for our sins. He has cleansed us with his righteousness. And he did all that, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He loves us. He's the friend of sinners, as scripture says. As dirty as we are, he wanted to spend eternity with us, so he found a way to cleanse us. New City, we can be assured of God's mercy towards us because Jesus really did die, and he rose from the dead three days later. Believe that. That is our confidence. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show, show the immeasurable riches of his grace and 
in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You guys, we could preach multiple sermons on just that text and what that means. But my point is this, our confidence that we are recipients of God's mercy is not found in our success at being good, our ability to kill sin. It isn't being a decently good person. It isn't that my life looks like less of a mess than this other person's life. That isn't where our confidence that we receive God's mercy comes from. God does not want us to feel assurance from being good. You guys, the found, one of the foundational truths of Christianity is realizing that we are never good, not truly. That is the point. Like Jonah, we are the antagonists in our story, as I mentioned before. We aren't worthy of mercy, but God has offered it to us anyway in Jesus. That's the whole point of him coming to earth. Jesus is who the story of Jonah ultimately points us to. He's why the Ninevites could have salvation. He's why Jonah was able to be saved and shown mercy in our passage here. We can know God's mercy for us is unending because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, what he has already accomplished and fulfilled. Our faith is powerful to save, not because of the strength of it, but because of who it is in. That's what we have to believe, you guys. That is our confidence, that is our assurance. And that is true whether we are on one of our best days where we are cognizant of our sin, we are repenting well, or where we are in the depths of the worst sin we have committed in our lives. That assurance doesn't disappear. That is our hope. That is our security in Jesus Christ. So what now? I want to restate something that I said at the very beginning. It has been my hope with this sermon that you will honestly assess yourself, that you would own your flaws and failures. Let's acknowledge them, you guys. And then bring them to God without fear. I want you to see and know that God's mercy goes deeper and further than any of your sins ever could. A person like you with all of your weaknesses and sins, a person like me is exactly the type of person who God most extravagantly wants to show mercy to. Let's trust him in that. As long as you continue to seek him, he will never tire of offering that grace to you in Jesus Christ. That is the same truth that compelled God to send the fish to swallow Jonah. That's the same truth and mercy that compelled Jonah to pray this prayer that we see in chapter two. Church, I wanna close with some words from John Newton. He was an 18th century English pastor who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. Um, on one occasion, so I was gonna get on a tangent. John Newton's incredible. You should read all about him. He's a great person. Um, he is like my like Christian idol, basically. Um, but he had this prolific ministry through letter writing to, to friends. Um, and on one occasion, a friend wrote a letter to him expressing how discouraged he was by some sin in his life. Um, and I really liked Newton's response to his friend. And he wrote this. And you'll notice one of the lines in this, I, I was telling Eric before, uh, the service today, it's so cool that we sang his mercy is more um, 
before the sermon. This was not intentional because that song, it, the, the, the man who wrote that song wrote it based off of this letter, this portion of the letter that I'm about to read to you guys. So it's just so cool. So Newton said this to his friend who was discouraged by his own sin. He said, let not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts out none that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. New City, let's be a church that lives in that hope. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for all of these truths. God, thank you that you are a God who your natural instinct and compulsion is to shower mercy upon those who don't deserve it. All you ask is that they bring their sins, their flaws, their failures, their weaknesses to you. You are a father who delights in blessing his children in that way. God, help us to be a church that believes that, that knows that, that walks in light of that. Help us to do that by your spirit in gratitude for Christ who made all of this possible. Help us to exalt his name today and every day of our lives. In him we have mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends. So uh, now is the time when we, uh, we spend some time at the end of the service doing three things. We reflect, we remember, and we rehearse. I want you to spend some time now before we remember through the Lord's Supper together. Um, I want you to take some time reflecting on how you have been failing to take God at his word. This unbelievably abundant, extravagant mercy that he offers us, how have you shrunk that in your own mind? And how have you shrunk your sins even more to make your life feel more manageable? Reflect on how you've minimized your view of God and let's expand it together this morning. Reflect on that. What in your life do you think is too far from the reach of God's merciful hand? Bring that to him. And then after that, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper in remembrance. We've got two stations up in the front. You can take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup and take it or bring it back to your seat and take it there. This is where we remember through the Lord's Supper that our confidence is not in ourself as we were just talking about. It isn't in having all of our ducks in a row, being a generally good person. Our confidence, our hope, our strength, our security, our everything is in the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so we remember what he faced on our behalf as we take the bread and remember his body broken for us. And we take the juice and remember the blood that he of his that was spilled out on our behalf. And then after that act of remembrance, we'll rehearse. 
we'll sing together more praises to God for his mercy and love. Uh, we wanna rejoice together in the fact that though we are very flawed people, um, we have an incredible God that far exceeds anything we could hope for. So let's do that this morning. Take some time to reflect, remember, and rehearse.